It was amazing. That was the first jazz fest after Katrina. Um, Springsteen was headlining. I I was not going to miss that, so I, I went down and um, and it was it was pretty magical. Honestly, um, the uh, the sound check in the morning, which I went to, um, was in the rain and mud. It was raining. It was muddy. Um, uh, the edge came out from U2 and was sitting on the side of the stage. And we were all standing there, you know, watching them run through some songs. I saw, um, you know, Alan Toussaint came over and uh, to say hello to, to Bruce. And um, it was it was a great moment to see them, you know, and Bruce, the glow on his face just to be talking with Alan Toussaint was amazing. And, um, you know, when they went to the stage, there was just like a, such a great energy about it. And, you know, I've been to a lot of Springsteen shows and uh, and he was really, really stoked to go out there and, and you know, he, they went out and they, of course, they just really, really crushed it. And, you know, Bruce can really bring the energy and really engage in a crowd. Welcome back to episode three of Festival Circuit New Orleans. I'm Rob Steinberg. There's some events in musical history that just stick in people's minds. And for the people we interviewed for this podcast, the performance by Bruce Springsteen at the first Jazz Fest after Hurricane Katrina was at the top of the list. Photographer Danny Clinch continues his story about that performance. What really amazed me was um, when they did uh, When the Saints Come Marching In, and uh, just the way that Bruce made it his own, you know, the way he played the song and the the heartfelt delivery and... and, uh, you know, it was so amazing. He even could see all the policemen that were standing in the front. Even those guys were choked up. Like, it really was an emotional, emotional moment. And a lot of the other artists, you know, came to stand on the side of the stage to hang out. Um, and uh, I, I, I remember after the set, um, you know, Bruce just coming off and he's just he was just and Bruce and Patty, you know, together, like they, they were just glowing, you know, like his face was just glowing. He just had a big smile on his face and he came over and Elvis Costello went right over to him and Land- John Landau. And they all just kind of like stood there like, holy shit, that was amazing. You know, like they were like as excited as any- anybody else on the whole fairground. And uh, it was really moving. As we heard at the end of episode two, the city was fundamentally changed after the storm. After eight months of rebuilding, recovery, setbacks, frustrations, and reuniting, the Jazz Fest provided a moment for people to come together through music. The motto of the 2006 Jazz Fest was, witness the healing power of music. And although Bruce Springsteen was a New Orleans outsider, he was welcomed in to help with this healing. At the time, Bruce had just launched a tour to promote an album he released called We Shall Overcome, The Seeger Sessions. The album was released on April 25th, 2006, and was made up of his take on 13 folk songs made popular by the legendary Pete Seeger. The songs popularized during the labor movements of the 1950s deal with themes of struggle, solidarity, and strength. The title track of the album, We Shall Overcome, was an anthem for the civil rights movement. The organizers of Jazz Fest and the Springsteen camp clearly saw an opportunity to bring this band full of horns and gospel and folk musicians and songs of struggle and survival 
to the first post-Katrina festival. Given the criticism of the government's response to the hurricane, the disproportionate effects of the hurricane on black neighborhoods, and the displacement of thousands of residents, these songs felt appropriate on that day. Many longtime New Orleans residents appreciated the moment. Jay Mazza, a music writer who wrote Up Front and Center, New Orleans music at the end of the 20th century, remembers it like this. Yeah, you know, I went to high school in Jersey. In Jersey, you either love, in the 70s, you either love Springsteen or you hated Springsteen. And he'd already played once in New Orleans, and I talked to a few people. He was doing that Seeger sessions. Look, I got the goosebumps. I was telling you this one. And uh, the, um, everyone's like, have you heard the album yet? I was like, nah, I don't really like Springsteen. That Seeger sessions, which I think everyone has probably mentioned, after Katrina, that was one of the most cathartic, powerful, most amazing things. People were weeping. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into Jazz Fest itself, which celebrated its 50th year in 2019. Of course, the festival has been postponed until 2021, and we're already preparing ourselves for that one. Let's go back to the beginning. Before the first Jazz Fest in 1970, there had been ideas for a festival in New Orleans in the works for some time. Remember that George Ween, who would eventually produce Jazz Fest, had earlier created the Newport Jazz and Newport Folk Festivals. But in New Orleans in the 1960s, segregation still plagued the city. Here's Ben Jaffe talking about Preservation Hall during that time. Because at that time we're talking about the segregated South, legally segregated South, you know, at that time it was, you know, Jim Crow laws. So the idea, this, this whole idea of black musicians and whites socializing was illegal. This whole, the whole concept of this was illegal. The artists figured out a, a way around this. Uh, you know, first of all, the, the French Quarter just seems to be a little bit more permissible and they figured out that if it was an art gallery, they could sort of nudge the rules a little bit. And if nobody said anything, maybe we could just kind of fly a little bit below the radar and, and no one will notice. And we'll just, we won't make a big deal about it. We won't advertise it. We're, not, we're just trying to enjoy the music and sell art. So that was the situation in New Orleans at the time. But not everyone was as open-minded. According to George Ween's 2004 autobiography, in 1968, he was approached to produce a jazz festival in the city based on his success with the Newport Festival. But the idea was killed by New Orleans Mayor Vic Shiro when they learned that George's wife, Joyce, was black. 
But in the late 60s, things evolved quickly, and by 1969, the New Orleans Jazz Festival and Louisiana Heritage Fair was confirmed for five days, April 22nd through April 26th, 1970. The festival would be held in Beauregard Square, which would later go back to its original name, Congo Square, in 2011. The first festival featured Duke Ellington, Mahalia Jackson, the Olympia Brass Band, Preservation Hall Band, Al Hurt, and many others. In planning that first 1970 Jazz Fest, hopes were high. At the press conference announcing the festival, George Ween said, New Orleans in the long run should become bigger than the Newport in jazz festivals. Newport was manufactured, but New Orleans, <laughs> it's the real thing. And he was right. At the time, the musicians, organizers, and music fans in the city knew that having a jazz festival in the most historical place in the city for African Americans was extremely important. In episode one, we mentioned that George Ween made two key hires for that first jazz fest. Allison Minor, an employee at Tulane University's Hogan Jazz Archives, and Quint Davis, an intern at the Archives. They would both play huge roles in the future of Jazz Fest. Allison Minor, who passed away in 1995, had this to say about that first festival in an interview for the book, The Incomplete, Year-by-Year, -year, Selectively Quirky, Prime Facts Edition of the History of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Allison said, when our festival started in 1970, it was just the beginning of an opportunity for people to party together, you know, to hear each other. The civil rights laws, the festival, and well, just the nature of the changing scene in America during the 60s, people didn't want to hurt someone of another race. You didn't want to continue the bitter agony that had been prolonged for hundreds of years in this country. So celebrating their culture with everyone there, black and white, became an opportunity for people to say, hey, this is pretty spectacular. I'm going to forget all about my prejudices from childhood, and I'm going to just see things differently. And I, I think that's what our festival did. The organizer's spirit of celebration and unity that started with that very first Jazz Fest has carried on to this day. And it helps us understand why that performance by Bruce Springsteen at the first Jazz Fest after Katrina was so important and meaningful to so many people. Well, what's even more fascinating is that Quint Davis has remarked that the Newport Folk Festival, which started in 1959, was actually Pete Seeger's idea, which he shared with George Ween. So you have this incredible moment in history in 2006 with Bruce Springsteen playing music that Pete Seeger made famous at a festival that might never have happened without Pete Seeger. Many of the interviewees we talked to have been around since the early days of Jazz Fest, but perhaps none as early as George Porter Jr., the legendary bass player for the Meters. Here's what he recalled about the 1970 Jazz Festival. I actually performed the very first Jazz Festival, um, and that would have been the one that happened before um, we moved to the um, fairgrounds. A memorable thing would be that um, I got to play with um, with, um, with uh, my cousin Ellis Marcellus and his band because their bass player was late for the gig. Late getting there, couldn't, or was there, couldn't find a place to park and was just late getting to the stage. And uh, and I got to play a song with uh, with Ellis uh, 
The name of the song was Sidewinder, a song I'd never played before in my life, and it was it was kind of it was kind of learned the song on the spot, you know. Learning on the spot, like a true musician, and the organizers of the festival were learning too. Although the 1970 festival purportedly lost about $36,000, there was no going back. The New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival was here to stay. The 1971 Jazz Fest had notable performances by B.B. King and Nina Simone, but it's also notable for another reason, as it marked the comeback of Professor Longhair, or Fess as he was known. As the legend goes, at the time, Henry Roland Roy Bird was working as a janitor at a record store. He had become well-known as a New Orleans R&B musician from the mid-40s to the mid-60s, including a big hit locally with Go to the Mardi Gras. But he had faded somewhat into obscurity. He was approached by Allison Minor and Quint Davis, and he accepted an invitation to perform at the 1971 festival. After three days of performances, his career was revitalized. Allison Minor started working with him, and he began recording and touring again, and eventually became a legend in New Orleans. He played at every jazz fest from 1971 until his death in early 1980. And his image is still on top of the covering of the main stage at Jazz Fest. The festival has the ability to elevate and rejuvenate New Orleans musicians, and to highlight some amazing musicians who otherwise wouldn't have had that spotlight. We're going to hear a lot more about Fess in episode four. And when we go outside the fairgrounds to talk about the late night shows, well, there's a little club that was named after one of his songs. And I believe it may actually be one of the best musical vortexes in the world. It was formed by a group of music fans in 1976 so that Fess could have a place to play as many clubs were not allowing local black musicians to take the stage. If you went to the Jazz Fest in 2019, you would have been able to see and hear music at one of 13 different stages, most of which have been renamed along the way. But the one thing that you do hear from almost anyone you talk to at the festival is that if you venture beyond the main stages at the fairgrounds, you can find and get turned on to almost every kind of music there is. We won't examine every tent or type of music in detail, but we want to talk about a few musical experiences that will make this festival unique. In 1973, the Gospel Tent was established. Although gospel music had been played at the festival since the beginning, it started to become a core part of the music festival. In 1974, every day of Jazz Fest includes seven hours of gospel music. And the prominence of gospel music at Jazz Fest is certainly connected to the religious nature of the city, particularly within the black communities. Here, the soul queen of New Orleans, Irma Thomas, is talking about the influence of gospel music on her upbringing. Well, you have to understand that in the South, in general, in the South, most black people, uh, as, whether you call us African-Americans now, but I wasn't born in Africa, I'm black, I was born right here in the United States. But anyway, uh, most of us were raised in the church. It was a part of our lives. 
we we grew up in the church doing from Sunday school to being in the junior choir or being presented having to do little songs or sing saying little poems or reciting some of the spiritual chapters or, or verses from the Bible. We grew up in the church, so it's part of our lives, and that's how I was raised. I was brought up in the church, grew up in the church. I was never told that I couldn't sing what I wanted to sing because music was around the house all the time. On the weekends, my daddy would play his favorite blues records, and then during the week, back in the days when I was growing up locally, you had you had two two types of music well you had all kinds of music being played on the radio stations but you also had regular gospel music shows that were either some of them were early in the day some of them were late in the day but you heard gospel music as well as all the other genres of music that was being played at that time and music in general is therapeutic but gospel music I was brought up that gospel music is another way of prayer. So lots of times when people are in bad moods or having a rough time of it, they'll they'll recall one of their favorite gospel songs and they will sing that and it'll get them back out of whatever that sad feeling that they're in. So New Orleans is connected many, many ways with gospel as being a form of therapy. And, you know, we live it every day. There are two entrances to get into the festival, one off of Gentilly and a smaller one off of Mystery Street. But once you enter through Mystery Street and your ticket is scanned and you cross into the festival, you are literally delivered, quite karmically, to the gospel tent. And it is therapeutic. Once you get near the tent's entrance, you'll immediately know it's the right place to be. Here's what music writer Geraldine Wyckoff, who's only missed one day of Jazz Fest since 1978, says about the gospel tent. You know, I have a motto, when in doubt, go to the gospel tent, because it always swings in there, you know, and you can be standing going, okay, I don't know what to do. And, and, and I hadn't experienced a lot of live gospel before I moved here. And so... Um, that was that was an experience to get that feel. <laughs> the electrifying crown seekers when the one singer would sing Walk Around Heaven and he would go up for the high notes. He would go up for the high notes. And then the gospel soul children, they used to close out the fest on the last Sunday. That was always, you know, explosive. Spoken like a true veteran. Rick Farman, who we heard from in the last episode, had a similar realization about the gospel tent. Rick took inspiration from Jazz Fest to start Bonnaroo in Tennessee and Outside Lands Festival in San Francisco. There's no doubt that, you know, kind of probably the most profound initial thing was was going to the gospel tent and just seeing, you know, the power of that style of music, particularly in that setting where you can tell it was sort of a real community there. Um... I remember early on at Jazz Fest feeling um, like that was just super unique and compelling. It may seem like gospel music is for people who are religious or maybe people who are a certain age, but that's not how Reverend Ron Klingenpeel sees it. I worked for WWOZ at Jazz Fest in, in the hospitality tent, and uh, in the last several years, what's sort of blown me away is that the gospel tent is not too far from our, our base of operations. 
And on, an, on several occasions, I've walked by the gospel tent, which has, you know, very traditional southern black gospel music. It's wonderful stuff. And to look at the crowd and to see 20-somethings in, in, in significant numbers sitting in there listening to this, and I'm going, they've never experienced this before, and they're, they're drawn to it. Uh, and some of them are up in the aisles dancing with other people. It's just, a, it's really, it, it just opens the door for more experiences for people. And I, I think because of the diversity of the music that New Orleans represents, people think of New Orleans as, as jazz or funk, or traditional jazz. But I think there's a huge diversity of music in this city. And I think something like Jazz Fest and the French Quarter Festival open doors for people they never expected to have open. As music fans, part of the reason we go see live music is to have these various doors opened. I must admit, the first time I started going to Jazz Fest in the 70s, gospel was not on my list of music to see. After all, I was a Jewish kid from Philly, and the only time I ever heard gospel music was when I was looking for cartoons on Sunday morning and would flip to the wrong channel. But like so many things in our lives do, that changed too. And sure enough, I would be dancing in the aisles, waving my hands in the air and testifying. It was powerful, no matter what your faith. And it's a beautiful way to think about music discovery. We can all understand. Over time, Jazzfest has proven to be a showcase for not just a wide variety of genres of music, but also as a way to showcase New Orleans music for visitors from around the world. Here's Keith Spera of the New Orleans Times-Picayune. So much of the Jazzfest consists of local musicians, and they're not the kind of local musicians that you get anywhere else. You know, New Orleans has its own music scene, its own music identity, which is not one thing. I mean, there are, there's jazz, there's funk, there's rap, there's uh, experimental rock, there's contemporary takes on funk, there's Mardi Gras Indians, uh, all that stuff. So, so many of the performers, uh, you know, I, wanna, I think the percentage is upwards of 80%, are indigenous to South Louisiana. For a festival that size where you've got 600 or so acts over the course of what is now eight days at the fairgrounds, you know, there's no other festival that has that many local acts playing, uh, and certainly not that many good local acts, you know. Uh, so, so much of the festival comes from the city. And then you've got the food vendors, a lot of whom have been out there for decades doing all kinds of like local cuisine. Um, you've got the people doing the social aid and pleasure club marches around the infield. Those guys are through and through local. So you can't recreate that atmosphere, um, that coalition of, of artists, that uh, melding of music and culture and people anywhere else. So, I mean, the, the festival is very much woven into the fabric of life in New Orleans and vice versa. This gets to one of the core ideas that we've been exploring in this series. The idea that the festival, although it now features huge musical acts that attract fans to the city, was built to showcase New Orleans music. And while that balance between New Orleans music and music from outside the city can and will be debated, Jazzfest still feels like a completely unique event, one that couldn't be replicated with music of another city. 
and the discovery element is still critical. The next time you're at Jazz Fest and you're crushed up against the back fence of the main stage trying to catch a glimpse of Elton John, well, head over to Fado Doe or the Blues Tent. You may hear some Zydeco music or something that you could never hear anywhere else. In episode two, we heard about the Mardi Gras Indians and about the wild Chapatulas. And you just heard Keith mention the Indians' is kind of music you would only hear at Jazz Fest. This is certainly one of the more unique experiences you can have. Story has it that Allison Minor, Quint Davis, recruited some Mardi Gras Indians to join in the first Jazz Fest because it was such a great representation of the local music and culture. To understand what it's like to be at a show with Mardi Gras Indians, let's hear a story from Johnny Vodakovich, a longtime New Orleans drummer and member of the group Astral Project. Based on what we could track down, this probably would have happened at the 1974 festival. The funny thing that sticks out is when I was kind of young, Willie T called me at the last minute. He said, man, I'm coming to pick you up and we're going out to the festival. And I said, okay. So I thought this is band, you know, like a, like a quartet, you know. And uh, well, I, I get out there and, I got, and we're playing, you know, and it's a quartet. Earl Turbenton's playing alto, Willie, Willie T, George Davis is playing guitar. And we're playing and I got my eyes closed and my head down. And all of a sudden, this microphone stands, crashes down. I, I, I open up my eyes and there's nothing but feathers. All I can see is feathers everywhere. And... Uh, and while I had my eyes closed, the Wild Magnolias came up on stage and they were all dressed and they were just chaotic, you know, just dancing all over the place. And, you know, you know, and I opened my eyes and, and man, these guys were just crowded into the drums, you know, with all their feathers and their big suits and all of that stuff. And the microphones were getting knocked over and these guys, were, you know, everybody, they were feeling good, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, they danced all around and it was just crazy, man. I'll never forget that as long as I live because I was almost in shock. The musical experience of seeing Mardi Gras Indians is unlike almost any other kind of music you can see at Jazz Fest. And it's a family affair. We talked with Big Chief Bo Dallas Jr., the son of Big Chief Bo Dallas Sr., former chief of the Wild Magnolias. The Wild Magnolias first appeared at Jazz Fest in 1974, and at that time they had broken through into some popular music with a couple of very well-received albums. And their single, Smoke My Peace Pipe, Smoke It Right, hit number 74 on the Black Singles charts in 1974. Reviewing the 1974 Wild Magnolias LP in Christigo's record guide, Rock Albums of the 70s, Robert Christigo wrote, Here's some Mardi Gras music a little louder and jammier than we expect from T's Crescent City rival Alan Toussaint. In fact, it's the most boisterous recorded party I know. Two sides of dancing fun that wears down only slightly as it slips into the Saints. It's not only what I always wanted the polyrhythm kids on the bandstand and benches of Tompkins Square to sound like. It's also what I wanted Osabisa and the Ohio players and maybe even the meters to sound like. Like with many aspects of New Orleans music, the Mardi Gras Indian celebrations are passed along from generation to generation. Bo Dallas Jr., who's now big chief of the Wild Magnolias, remembers the first time he was going to go play with his father at Jazz Fest. Well, my first Jazz Fest, um, when I first started messing Indian, and I performed with my dad at Jazz Fest. So uh, the funniest story I, ever, I tell anybody 
my first jazz fest, I went to the front to go be nosy, go see all the people out in the audience and all that, and I wound up getting nervous and throwing up at jazz fest. And um, because I, I was, I, it was my first time on stage, first time in front of all these people, and I literally went back to stage and started throwing up because I was so nervous. And my mom was like, well, look, you don't have to go out there and, you know, you just stay in the dressing room with me and stuff like that. Uh, I started hearing that music playing. My dad started singing. I hardly got dressed for my Indian suit on and ran up on stage and it was on after that. I never got off stage after that. I was about eight, about eight, nine years old. And the Wild Magnolias are still going strong. Although Big Chief Bo Dallas Sr. passed away in 2015, the group is still making records and playing under the leadership of Big Chief Bo Dallas Jr., and at every Jazz Fest, you can still catch Marty Grindians on stage every day. We'll be right back. Any event that goes on for 50 years is bound to go through some tremendous changes. The Jazz Fest is no exception. Back at the beginning of episode one, we talked about New Orleans music feeling like a mix between the traditional and the innovative, the past and the present, the old and the new. Jazz Fest has attempted to balance all of this throughout its existence. One of the major changes for an enduring event is to navigate the inevitable shifts in popular music. Music is ever-changing, but there are shifts that push culture into a direction that changes the course of music. In the early 1980s, hip-hop was starting to emerge as a dominant force in music. Here's Ben Jaffe of Preservation Hall, remembering one of those transitional times at Jazz Fest. I was there at the moment that um, the Furious Five played. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, right? This is early 80s. I remember being backstage with my dad and George Ween, and there was this nervousness and sort of everybody kind of felt a little unsettled about the decision and not completely confident in the decision to um, present this band that was out of genre. You know, just by not being from New Orleans or Louisiana, now you're out of genre, okay? So we're presenting this band, their songs are on the radio, and we're presenting a style that's not even really that popular in New Orleans. This was all a strange moment, and I just remember being backstage at the stage, and I, I felt the electricity as a kid. I thought this was the coolest thing ever. This was amazing. These were like guys that like, you you know, every now and then you would like get a little glimpse of them on TV or in like a music magazine. And, and I mean, they were just bigger than life. That's that, and that, that was, that was like a turning point coming, you know, coming to, to grips with the idea that this concept that we, we needed a, we wanted this to always be a reflection of the city, not just musically a reflection of the city, but the people who attend the festival, the demographic that attends this festival has to represent New Orleans. This has to be a New Orleans festival, you know? And to this day, I can, I can honestly say it is the most diverse festival musically, um, culturally, of, of any festival that I've been to. Staying relevant in a constantly evolving music industry is difficult. And striking the balance between growth and profitability and artistic integrity is just as difficult. 
Throughout our interviews, we heard a lot about this balance and how it shifted as JazzFest has evolved. When JazzFest started, it was clearly a community affair, something that brought people around the city together to celebrate the music that everyone loved. Here's Johnny Vodakovich again. Practically everybody could afford it. You know, it was cool. It was cool. The first festivals were cool, you know, they were funny. I remember the days back, you know, in those first festivals when I, I drove my Pinto to the backstage with my drums in it, drove it across the, uh, the, the, the track, you know. I remember we used to pull, pull up our cars behind the stage, you know, and we used to play our own gear and stuff, you know. So, now I got lots of memories, you know. A pile of girls in the car, cover them up, sneak them in the back, you know. It was fun. As the festival grew, so did the ambitions. By the mid-1980s, the budget for the festival was over $2 million a year and was attracting 250,000 people over two weekends. The festival featured artists like Joan Baez, Miles Davis, James Brown, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. But still, in 1990, when Keith Sparrow of the New Orleans Times-Picayune first went, he felt like it was still much different from any other festival. Now, I first went to Jazz Fest in 1990. When I went to the first festival, I was just amazed at the sprawl of it and just the fact that it had, it was such a diverse representation of everything that was New Orleans all in one package. Uh, and, you know, right from the get go, it was obvious that there was a sense of community out there, that the people that went to Jazz Fest uh, treasured it, treasured the experience, kind of looked out for each other. It was a much more chill vibe than you get at a lot of music festivals. Uh, you know, in all the years I've been going, I can't ever remember seeing a fight out there, which is incredible when you've got, you know, 70,000 people being baked in the sun all day uh, and drinking beer. Uh, but it's just a very, you know, generally speaking, relaxed vibe. Um, and I think it's maintained that for all these years. The festival continued to grow. In terms of size, money, and the artists it drew, Bob Dylan debuted at the festival in 1993, and in 1995, 450,000 people attended. And the economic impact of the festival was estimated to be more than $200 million. In 1996, the first festival after Allison Minor had passed away from cancer, they welcomed Fish, Dave Matthews Band, the Indigo Girls, and the Allman Brothers Band. The music was expanding, the audience was expanding, and the festival had become a worldwide phenomenon. By the late 1990s, the festival was seeing almost half a million people over the course of two weekends, and there were days when attendance was close to 100,000 people. Locals began to get a bit agitated, seeing huge crowds that seemed to only be there for the huge bands that were drawing all the people to New Orleans, but who weren't from New Orleans, like Dave Matthews and Fish or Jimmy Buffett. And people felt like the grounds were getting more and more crowded. The festival continued to feel the tension of both growing and trying to keep the festival fresh by staying true to the foundation's mission, to promote, preserve, perpetuate, and encourage the music, culture, and heritage of communities in Louisiana. In the Prime Facts edition of the history of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, George Ween was quoted as saying, let me explain one thing so it's clearly understood. In New Orleans, we have to earn money to give it to the foundation so we can put on a festival. Nobody's subsidizing the fest to keep it pure the way some people want to keep it pure. 
whatever purity we have left, which is a lot, such as the gospel tent and Cajun Fado dough stages and archives, is being kept alive by the big name national artists, which people resent. It's a simple matter of arithmetic. This is the way large music festivals go. It grows. It develops a budget and a machine that needs to be supported. It brings in jobs and huge economic impact to the area, but it has no choice but to keep growing. And although it ends up giving money to the bigger artists, well, that may be a trade-off for keeping the local heritage intact. The year 2000 ushered in a new millennium and a new chapter for the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Acura had signed on as a sponsor, becoming one of the largest sponsors in festival history. But not only did Acura add resources to the festival, it also expanded the reach of the festival significantly by underwriting video documentaries and other promotions of the festival. That growth would be seen for years to come. In 2004, AEG came on as the co-producer of the festival. AEG is one of the world's largest live entertainment companies. Many people saw this as a game-changing moment. Here's writer Jay Maz's take on that. You know, there's no way they were getting Elton John. There's no way they were getting Aerosmith um, without AEG. You know, so that's a huge that's a huge factor in the growth. And I think that's also a huge factor in the, um, you know, at least in the last 14, 15 years. I think that's also a huge factor in the um, I don't know. I don't want to say it's like the attendance, but it's just their ability to through advertising and through all the other strengths that, have, you know, an international I guess they're international. Right. That a, that a company of that size brings to the table. But they also bring the um, the money factor in that and then i think that now factors in a lot more as far as the bigger acts that they're gonna that they're gonna hire is that they want to make sure that they're gonna get a return on their buck whereas i'm not sure jazz fest was super worried about that in you know in the 80s indeed we mentioned that the cost of the first jazz fest ticket in 1970 was three dollars by 1988 it was nine dollars in 2006 or up to $40. Many of our interviewees mentioned that the increasing cost was a major shift in the festival over the years. Geraldine Wyckoff, the journalist we heard earlier, talked about the balance between cost and the experience that Jazz Fest provides. The problem, of course, and I, you know, there's no way around it, is that so many locals just can't afford to go. You know, so that is, I mean, they have a local day, but it's still 50 bucks. And mm -hmm. you've got a couple of kids, you know, and it, yeah, it's expensive to be out there. Some of the really good changes, and I love the uh, cultural exchange tent. Because they've now this year they're bringing in musicians from Puerto Rico. They've had Haiti, they've had Cuba. You know, they had Belize, which I used to go to Belize a lot. And that was just so much fun. People in there, it's a small tent, but people really dance in there. And the cop, this one cop <laughs> danced, too. I mean, he was right in the center of the circle. This guy, full uniform, gun, everything. He's out there dancing. So that's been a great addition. Here's how Holly Hobbs, the cultural researcher we heard from in episode one, sees the trade-offs. Oftentimes, we have our local musicians relegated to the Congo Square stage, for example. 
what would be ideal is to have Jazz Fest have a really, truly integrated perspective with New Orleans music where New Orleans musicians could be playing on the Acura stage. But Jazz Fest, at the end of the day, does support local musicians, does pay fair wages, and is a space where people from out of town can come into contact with these musicians that they wouldn't normally be able to see. With all of the discussions that we had with our interviewees about the pros and cons of the growth of Jazz Fest, memories always came back to a special musical experience. The Nella Brothers would close out Jazz Fest, and that always, to me, felt like, it always felt so magical, like uh, this one big tribe that just gathers once a year and and conjures up this magical feeling, you know? My experience with traditional jazz had been fairly limited at that point. And uh, I walked in and there's this big band on stage all dressed in naval uniforms and, and, and playing this really wild, wonderful music from a century earlier. It was, it was great. Well, the, the, the Dirty Dozen one was a life-altering experience. There was no doubt. Very few things have done that, probably a handful in my life. And it wasn't simply being blown away or a technical, it was an overall movement of energy that I had never experienced anything like that. Another one that really sticks out of my mind um, was uh, James Booker tribute uh, in the uh, Allison Minor tent that was with Dr. John and Alan Toussaint, and they had two pianos set up facing each other. Both uh, Mac and Alan were just going back and forth, kind of demonstrating, um, you know, kind of the things that they had picked up from Booker and telling stories, and then they would, you know, play these songs together, just two pianos. And I, I just remember walking out of that thing being like, I'm not sure I, I'll ever see anything quite as uh, unique and incredible as that uh, in terms of, you know, sort of a complete, um, you know, concentration of like the New Orleans music story right there in one place at one time. The night that went, both Wynton Marcellus and Miles Davis played, and they, they had kind of, uh, you know, didn't have the best relationship. Mm. But, I mean, to have such two giants like that, um, you know, in one night. <laughs> I think the tent blew down that, that night. And here's a memory from Rob Mercurio, a founding member of Galactic, who we'll hear a lot from in episode four. And back then, the Jazz Fest was definitely a little more oriented towards the local music. It wasn't as heavy in, in touring acts or headliners. And um, I remember the Funky Meters were a headliner on the Acura stage that year. And I was a big Meters fan and still am to this day. And um, I just remember sitting there at the Acura stage, burning up hot sun coming down on my extremely pale skin and, um, and just loving every minute and thinking that this was possibly the best moment of my life. And for a lot of music fans, Jazz Fest has become a crucial part of their lives. I started coming to the fest in 78, and I finally moved here in 81. And I've missed one day. And I cried the whole day because I was really sick. <laughs> and I could hear the church bell, the St. Louis Cathedral. And I knew, because I'd been writing about who was coming and when, 
I knew who was coming on every time that bell rang. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> and there's one more thing we need to talk about before we wrap it up. If you're out in the sun all day long, just like we heard Galactic's Rob Mercurio recount, you're going to need something to eat and drink. But what should you get? Get a cold beer and an oyster po' boy. Crawfish Monica became a thing in New Orleans because uh, they were serving it at Jazz Fest. Always going to get Crawfish Monica. There's jambalaya and there's crawfish pie and, you know, um, soft-shell crab. Things that people from out of town, a lot of them have never even experienced, you know. But I was a food taster for the Jazz Fest for about eight years. Oh, it was a great job, you know. So, you know, they give you a ticket. You just got to eat like, I think it was like four or five things a day. You don't have to eat all of it. You just have to taste it. So you could be like, hey, man, use that though. Oh, that's on my list. Can I have a bite of that? That was cool. Greedy pork chop, mango freeze, frozen cup. Oh my God! Don't get me started. I'm I'm about to get sad thinking about. I eat, I eat too much at Jazz Fest. Anybody who know me know that I'm I'm going. I'm eating everything. It ain't. I I don't want the crawfish Monica or none of that. I want a hot dog, the pool boy, trout baguette. Oh my God! What I like yakami, full crackling. Shit, you talking my language? No. Here's my take on the food. You can sample from food that you've likely never heard of before or you can't get anywhere else but here. And that could be an oyster sack, pecan catfish manere, seafood merlaton, soft-shell crab po'boy, spinach artichoke casserole, sweet potato pone, white chocolate bread pudding, pheasant quail andouille gumbo, creole stuffed crab, catfish almondine, crawfish rumulade, crab ravigote, and my new favorite sandwich of the past decade is the yakiniku po'boy. A garlic ribeye and pickled vegetable on a toasted bun that tastes better than it sounds, for sure. The food, the music, the memories, well, they all go together to create that special experience that is the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. But many of the most famous performances associated with the festival didn't even happen on the festival grounds. They happened on a riverboat called The President, at a club called Tipitina's and at a whole lot of places in between. In episode four, we'll go home, get cleaned up, wash the jazz fest off of us after a long day at the fairgrounds, and then head out for a night of music. We'll explore the evolution of the night concerts from the president to the clubs uptown and those thriving on Frenchman Street. We'll talk to some of the musicians who've been playing late night jazz fest gigs for a long time, like Robert Walter. The late night thing was always kind of where I, I thought the action was. I mean, you know, it's, of course, the, the festival is very important. It brings everybody to the city. But it's for my, for what I'm into, I like the club thing where it's smaller rooms, more intimate, um, a little less scripted, um, you know, sort of, it's, it's more casual. So it inherently inspires a little more like unique, unique experiences. And I always loved it, the thing, like, you never know who's going to sit in. It's, um, you know, it's a good place to sort of experiment and try out things. Between the fairgrounds and the food and the clubs and the late night shows, I mean, you have to find some time to rest. Or going at it for eight days a week will certainly catch up to you. So grab a bite and a drink, kick off your shoes, take a breather, 
We'll be back next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about what makes this city and its music so special. Festival Circuit is presented by Osiris Media. This series is narrated and produced by me, Rob Steinberg. Executive producers are Christina Collins, Andrew Goodwin, and RJB, who also double duties as series writer and creator. Produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Show logo by Liz B. The theme song is Jazz Fest Time by Circus Mind with special guest Ivan Neville. Thanks to all interviewees and to WWOZ. Thanks again for listening.